Welcome to the Talking Horses Podcast, hosted by Steve Halfpenny. Steve is an internationally recognised horsemanship educator, Melbourne Equitana presenter and lifelong student of good horsemanship. His passion for learning about horses and helping them become willing partners to their owners is only exceeded by a willingness to share what he has learned with horse owners everywhere. Hi everybody, welcome to this month's episode of Talking Horses. I've got a Lester Buckley, our guest for the for this show. I first met Lester in, in America a few years ago at Light Hands and uh, I was really impressed, Lester, at the time about, you know, you were demonstrating with the A-Tans horse, how you weren't into showing how good the horse was or you were straight away. You were just gathering information about that horse. And it stands in my mind even to today how, I guess for an hour on that session, on your first session, you just rode around quietly and waited for him to relax. Mm-hmm. It is, sure, sure, Steve. And that kind of is my kind of default way of riding, I would think, is I don't kind of come in with a lot of, you know, I might have some preconceived ideas, but I've learned to put them on the side and, and just ride as quietly as I can and let the horses talk to me through, you know, all their senses. A lot of it's their life and how they look around and how they feel. And, and uh, the quieter I get, it seems like the better I can hear. And just really learn to be a good listener to what the horses were saying and kind of gather some information. And then as I gather information about my horse, uh, or at least the horse I'm riding, then I'll kind of start to ask questions back to the horse and see if they're with me and how they feel about a different set of aids and the timing of cues and stuff like that and kind of go from there. But it starts off, it might look kind of non-eventful to most people, actually. Yeah, and of course, if, if you weren't there for the whole of the few days, nobody would have realized where you were going with that. You know, but in the end, you... He was doing pretty spectacular things for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he turned out, you know, mm-hmm. normally we have three days there and, you know, we might have a an hour session for three days. It's not a tremendous amount of time, but an uh, hour and a half, maybe each day. But the third day was quite spectacular. You know, we had some, some very high level maneuvers. And part of that is, I think if you've ridden, enough you kind of have an idea pretty quick you know how you can advance but i always find in the beginning you know slower is certainly gonna uh, do me a lot more uh justice and my horse justice by kind of tuning in with them yeah so just looking at your website before you know we got on today i was sort of looking at your history a little bit and you you know grew up on ranching country in north texas Were you riding from a child, or did you get into riding a little later, or what was the story there? Uh, Riding from a child, Steve. Uh, I lost my mom and my second mom and my dad all by the time I was probably seven years old. And I had some other families, some aunts and uncles that came in and kind of rallied around and helped raise me. But even by that age, we were already riding our ranch horses. Ginger and Nubbin was their names. And so we were riding those horses as kids, ginger and oven. I love it. And uh, it was just a matter of fact, kind of like, this is how we do things. We'd ride them to the pond and crawl up on them and jump off and 
splash the water and crawl back up on them. And, and there was three boys, my cousins and I, we only had two horses. So we were always, somebody was always riding double. And, uh, it was just a way of life for us. You know, we raised cattle as well. And, uh, so we tried to do what we could, uh, horseback. And then I got to high school and I got real serious about horses. And my neighbor had an own son of Doc Barn and an own son of Freckles actually from Australia. Uh, that we had brought up and so he was really big into breeding horses and he put me on a lot of fantastic mares and that was all you know through high school so it was a fantastic childhood hard of course in some ways but it, it allowed me to spend an inordinate amount of time being attached to the animals right so you were already well on your way before university i guess to to really feel for the inside of the horses you're right. Uh, I look back on it now as a real treasure. Uh, you know, the legendary trainers in California and Texas back then were like Matlock Rose and Larry Reeder and Buster Welch. And uh, what I found was I w all these mares trained by these gentlemen were coming to us for breeding. And this farm manager would pay me $5 per horse if I would just exercise them. And I can't tell you how much I learned by riding horses trained by these different legendary uh, trainers when I was just a kid. You know, so but before I even went to high school, I had a really good idea how those men rode and what their horses responded to. Just trial and error, you know, warming, you know, exercising these horses day to day before and after school. Right. And then at university, uh, you were introduced to Ray Hunt or did you meet him sort of before that? Uh, no, actually, I met I met him in college. I went to a little uh, school down in the Big Bend of Texas, Sol Ross State University, on a, on a horse science scholarship, an equestrian scholarship, and I was pretty serious about studying horsemanship. And our uh, counselor and rodeo coach knew that Ray was coming to Fort Stockton, Texas, and he encouraged me to take off school for a week and go down to watch Ray, and it really changed the course of my career and uh, so now i had fantastic uh teaching and so you know then my scholarship for the next four years allowed me to follow ray uh, if he was teaching basically in texas or new mexico that i could have excused absences and go put a colt in the colt starting and a horse in the horsemanship and and ride there for several days and then come back and teach it to my peers which was a little bit challenging but it did help me to learn how to digest it down and break it down. And so that's, I basically did that for four more years of uh, university was following Ray and his teachings and riding in his clinics, but still, you know, getting my full degree as well. Right. And then you've, you've started a lot of cults since then. So you went right. away and started horses for a living. Yep. Yeah. Uh, after college, I went to Canada, which was probably my most humbling experience ever because I've been riding a lot of kind of fancy cutting horses and reining horses and different colts, you know, for different ranches through school. And when I went to Canada, it was way up northern British Columbia. And these horses, they weren't round people. They weren't halter break. You know, the average age, the average age was probably seven, uh, not halter broke, not even castrated. And no roads in, no roads out. We had to fly in with an airplane and trap them. And, uh, you know, so I had I had some horses that were 10 years old, 11 years old, never been touched. 
and you know the youngest one was probably four and uh they did not play by the same rules that i had learned young uh, well-bred horses that grew up uh, in the backyard or the back lot at the ranch and grew up by i mean it was i mean they would chase me out of those round pins and i would be running and jumping out of the corrals trying to save my life and you know, I, I had my I had what I considered to be a horse trainer's outfit, and they were not impressed at all. And they would come at me with their teeth and with their feet. <laughs> you know, I spent about my first week fleeing more than anything else. <laughs> wow! But they all make you who you are today, don't they? All those experiences. So, what what did that teach you, really? <laughs> Well, you know, it was a big lesson and I carry with me every day today uh, when I ride is it taught me to not come in there with my agenda and go in there and kind of see what kind of guideline that I can work with these horses and still have it be fair to them. Because those horses up there, you know, those a 10 year old mare that was kind of an alpha mare, you know, you go in there and you start putting a little pressure on her with a flag or a rope or something like that. She'd just come at you 100 miles an hour. And so there's a line right there that some of those mature horses, you cross that line of what they consider to be fair. They'll just, I mean, they live with grizzly bears and black bears and wolves up there in the, in the wild. And so I'm pretty feeble compared to that. And so I had to scale back quite a bit, my pressures and my timing. And, but I found by doing that, uh, those horses would kind of invest in it and they made it eventually but it really changed the, my agenda. You know, it slowed me down and made me a little bit more precise about not being too bold and not being too strong unless it was a real firm kind of fairness mm -hmm. when needed. Yeah, and, and then you ended up in Hawaii. Yeah? That was, I think you were living there when I first met you. Yes, sir. Uh, it was, you know, I still had quite a bit yeah. of horses to ride before Hawaii. So I spent seven years after Canada with a really fantastic Hall of Fame cutting horse trainer named Willie Richardson. And so I spent seven years with him learning how to train cutters, but mainly starting all the young horses for him. And so after seven years, he wrote me a really nice letter, you know, basically telling me it was my time to move on, that he didn't feel like he had anything left to teach me. Uh, and we had done really well. We had uh, won the Super Stakes and won the Open World Champion. And uh, so, and from there, Steve, I ended up going to the King Ranch. And so as I went to the King Ranch, then I was kind of back to being a freelance coal starter. And then from the King Ranch, I would go to Parker Ranch in the fall. So we might start 35 to 40 horses at the King Ranch. And then we'd go to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. I'd usually have a buddy of mine. And we'd go to the Parker Ranch and we'd probably start another 70. Uh, and so, you know, it's over 100 colts a year. And so we learned a lot, uh, you know, between me and whoever was traveling with me. I uh, had some really fine men travel with me. And so it was about a five-year stint when we did that. Just starting, you know, 100, 110 colts a year and, and uh, learning a lot through that as well. Yeah. And, yes, that when you've done two, you've doubled up. But when you've done thousands, you've, you've learned a lot, I guess, yep. from that experience. Yeah. I'm just having to do it again you know with this covid situation i'm having to start horses again because i can't travel and i find it amazing how much i've not done it for like several years and how much i feel like i've 
I'm behind the eight ball more than I was when I was doing it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a good point. So you, you're still uh, starting you, horses you now? You know, I'm not. I'm just starting my own now. So I, I, I can still travel, Steve, within the United States. Yeah. You know, I was planning on go to Germany and do some work, but they closed that, of course, last year. Uh, so I'm not, the only young horses I'm starting are our own. We've got three of our own that are youngish. You know, they're four, five, and six, so they're not exactly colts. But I and and, and I want to catch something you just said there. You you said, and I, and I think I know what you're saying. You said I feel like I'm a little bit more behind the a ball than when I was doing it all the time. And to to touch on that, here's what I found, and you'll 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 understand this the same way I do. When we would go to the King Ranch and we were riding, you know, eight head a day, you know, me and my buddy, so 16 head a day. And we'd get done in that season and we'd go to the Parker Ranch and we'd have maybe three weeks of travel, you know, leaving one place, packing up, getting everything squared away and flying out to the middle of Pacific before we started. Steven, just that three weeks, the first week that I was there, my timing would be off. And that's just that's just three weeks of not riding colts every day. And I'm thinking, Hey, wait a minute. And I was young and in my prime, right? We were in our thirties and I'm thinking, Hey, it takes me a good week to two weeks to get my timing back to what it was when I was riding eight head a day. And that's, and now it's even more so, right? Cause we're older, you know, uh, and you know, quite a bit older. I'm double what I was then. And so what I, here's the key, I think, and I don't mean to talk too long, but there's a key concept that you kind of touched on there. And I think for you and I now, especially for myself, is I have to have more wisdom and a better understanding and a little bit more precision and not making bad decisions because the horses are the same age or, you know, roughly as we were starting when we were younger, but since our timing's not as good or reflexes aren't as quick, uh, we need to bring something to the table that we couldn't bring back then. And it's the wisdom, basically, uh, and good judgment that we have from from that time of doing it back then. And, and that's I think that's our biggest asset now. And I think that's one of the things that makes you a good teacher uh, is having lived through that and experienced that and having the seasoning to see other people about to get in trouble. Or maybe you can help them through this or that because you and I have been there. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose what I used to think was fair to the horse, I don't really think is fair anymore. You know, I don't want the horse to get troubled. I don't want it to, to need to have to get into self-preservation with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of yes, watched uh, that in your teaching. Yes. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about you. I think that the real strong suit is, of course, your natural countenance, countenance is that way also. But you do kind of have a really nice disarming way of uh, allowing things to kind of unfold. Oh, thank you. Sometimes, you know, it, it would be nice to have somebody like you to ride with. You know, at the time, back in the old days, there was always somebody that I was riding with, some sort of a mentor. And then now you find yourself on your own a lot more. And it's... Uh, you question yourself more, I suppose. I question myself a lot more than I ever did before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then, you know, when you really kind of get something, you kind of firm it up and you're like, okay, I really do have a good hold on that now to those areas that I still have to shore up. I, I agree. 
but we do have a lot of wisdom and a lot of judgment, good judgment that comes from those years of, you know, just a lot of numbers and doing it every day. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the the change in your life that, that led you to the dressage and the, the more of the English writing. Mm-hmm. Was that something you've always wanted to do or it just sort of happened? No, it was, Steve, when I was little and I had moved in with my aunt and uncle who eventually ended up right, raising me. So this would be when I was about eight years old. They took me over to Fort Worth, Texas, because the Spanish writing school was there. And it was a novel thing for them. But for me, it really sowed a seed that I didn't know how to water. And so it was like a kind of a, uh, an interest in that world. But I didn't know anybody in that world. I was only eight years old, right? And my day-to-day life from eight years old all the way through high school was certainly not around any English writing, dressage writers or anything. And um, so after my years of, you know, the King Ranch and the Park Ranch in Hawaii, then I managed that ranch, the horse program for it at least, you know, we had about 500 workhorses. Um, uh, after managing that, I came back to Texas and I trained performance horses for about seven years because I kind of had to have, you know, I needed to know if I could, compete with those guys and competed and did real well and ended up in the standings at the end of the year in the cutting. And at the end of that year, I'd kind of seen some stuff in the sport that I, I didn't think it was a, probably the best place for me to raise a family. And so I was looking for something to segue into that would be a little bit more family oriented for what I wanted. And, uh, and I was, showing a cutting horse in Will Rogers Coliseum. Well, I was showing in the John Justin Arena in Fort Worth, Texas. And there was an instructor in the next arena over there, Will Rogers uh, from Germany, and he was teaching a dressage rider's trainer's clinic. And I got invited over by one of the instructors over there that knew that I had a peculiar interest in it, but didn't know anybody. So between classes, I would go over there and watch. And Steve, I guarantee it was just beautiful. I've still got my notes today. I refer to them all the time. And this would be about 2002, 2003, right around in there. 2002, I think. And it was, so it was at the end of those years of competing and showing when I was looking for a change. And I met him, and, and he and I became pretty well acquainted that week. I had a lot of questions. And he invited me to come to Germany. And uh, so I kind of closed the door on showing a lot of performance horses. I moved back to Hawaii and, um, you know, had a little bit more of a family life and went to work for a family, not the Parker Ranch at this time, but for a family that allowed me a lot of freedom to travel to Germany. And I could be gone six weeks to eight weeks and, you know, not lose my job or my career. So I did that for about the next eight years you know, living in Hawaii, going back to Germany a lot. And it was just another season that kind of unfolded for me kind of at the right time with fantastic instructors over there. And they're still my friends. Wow. And I think, you know, when, when I meet dressage riders, they almost feel that it's a totally different world and you can't mix it. But I, I think the principles are the same. Would you say it's the same principles behind everything? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, sometimes the weight aids are a little bit different is the only thing I find, you know, with most of our Western riding and especially working cows, you know, our weight is away from the cow a lot and away from the turns. And some of the English maneuvers, not all of them, but some of them, you know, will have a little bit more of a weight sometimes that leads the maneuver to invite the horse along, like a leg yield, maybe or something like that. 
Um, but other than that, the principles are pretty much the same. And, and even then, if you have weight neutral aids and they're dynamic, then you can shift it either behind or ahead, wherever you need it to be. And so it's not like a, a, a big difference. It's just a subtlety that I see. And of course, the contact is different. You know, with the Western horses, we have an implied contact over time, which brings them into collection. And with the English horses, you know, there's a way of actually teaching the horse to look for a little bit of contact. And, and um, you know, depending on the breed and depending on the region that you're training for determines kind of how much contact some horses need. But, you know, when I rode with the Germans over there, when you got to the higher levels, they would all say the same thing and because they knew I was a Western rider predominantly. But they would all say, well, we're glad to have you over here because good horsemanship is good horsemanship. Mm, that's good. And uh, so was it classical dressage you were involved in? Yep. It was uh, the German training system, you know, kind of under the auspices of the German FN. And, uh, and of course that's yeah. under the, uh, you know, the international, uh, governance of horse sport worldwide. So it was more the sport horses of it, not so much the Baroque side, the, yeah. not, so, not so much the artistic part of it, but the sport horse industry. And, uh, so I went through the German licensing, uh, program, uh, to the point where, you know, I was, you know, earned my trainer's license. And basically that was in dressage, sport jumping and cross country. And those, you have to do all three disciplines there. You have to ride them. And if you want to be a teacher, you have to teach them as well. So uh, that's kind of the route I went there uh, in the sport horse industry, which would basically be uh, training around the classical training scale that the Germans and the Americans and you know, a lot of countries use. Mm-hmm. So which direction are you heading now with your, with your horsemanship? Is it? just a bit of everything or are you really focusing more on the, the sports horse side of life? Um, it is a little bit of everything. You know, we have Arabian horses here, which, you know, I got involved with with Sheila Varian. Uh, I think you met her out there at Light Hands Horsemanship, right? So oh, she's kind of introduced yeah, me into the Arabian. Lady. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if people don't know her, they should certainly look up her story. She almost single-handedly brought dignity back to the Arabian breed when they were really struggling worldwide. Uh, So anyway, Sheila introduced me to the Arabians, and we have three here now from Sheila. And uh, we've still got some thoroughbreds that we've raised in the past that are here in Kentucky as well. Uh, I've still got my quarter horses, my ranch horses. I've still got some cutting horses. and uh, But the horses probably that we're investing in the most now are the sport horses from Germany. And, uh, but you know, most of my work now, Steve is probably teaching clinics and what's nice is it doesn't matter what comes in. It doesn't matter if it's someone coming in with a, uh, Spanish horse, or I see a lot of Lusitanos, Lusitanos coming into the States now. It doesn't matter if it's a horse that's going to do working equitation or if they're just riding for the artistic elements of the Baroque uh, style of riding, or if they want to ride sport horses or cutting horses or ranch horses or thoroughbreds it doesn't matter because you know i'm certainly not a master of any of them i wouldn't think but we have uh, a pretty broad and pretty deep understanding of the different different areas there that we've been allowed to study over the years and it's real refreshing Uh, it's just no longer one-dimensional the way i was when i was younger no you you seem like you're an eternal student anyway you're always 
looking to learn more. Well, that's a fine compliment. Thank you very much. I hope I can live up to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, not too many people have gone into so many directions. You know, I I remember not that long ago, there was a a guy in in Australia here that he just made a comment and he's, he's basically a classical dressage rider, but he just said, oh, I think I've learned all I can about horses. And Hmm. I thought, wow, that really... Hmm. It's shutting you off from learning anything else, you know. Once, you, once your mind mm-hmm. starts to to think you know it, hmm. there's always a lesson for me. Anyway, every time I think I know something, the horse will tell me how <laughs> much I don't know. I agree. There's there's a sentence that I came across. I wish I knew who said it because it's a brilliant sentence, but I can't remember. Maybe you know. Uh, and it basically the essence of it was a lifetime is too short to learn everything about a horse. A single lifetime. And so, you know, I think that's where we need the wisdom of the riding masters before us. Yeah. I think I had read Bill Dorrance say something like, you'd need several lifetimes to fit everything in that's available to you. Right. So you and I, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we're, we're pretty intelligent fellows as far as being a student. So we know, you know, find those men and women who have pioneered, you know, and like Bill Dorrance, for example, and Tom and Course Ray. And, but, you know, even in the other, you know, disciplines, you know, find those guys, you know, the uh, Lloyd Podowskis and Nuno Oliveras. And for me, you know, Hannes Mueller from Germany and different people like that. Find them and go study and learn what you can from them. Uh, you know, I was able to learn from some fantastic mm-hmm ranch horse trainers and cutting horse trainers there in texas and that kind of launched me into being a serious student of you know all the disciplines that i could get exposed to Mm -hmm. and just looking at your website this you haven't got many clinics up there i guess you're waiting to for things to pick up are you to travel again and start the clinic trail yeah we're so during the winter i stay pretty quiet i kind of come home and try to get my own place, you know, my own uh, horse farm here in Kentucky in shape and get our horses going again. And then we'll start teaching. I mean, there'll be, you know, uh, you know, there'll be an odd something at the end of July and then February, March. And so right now we're doing a lot of scheduling for next year and they're just kind of all starting to slip yeah. into places. And once we have the schedule pretty uh, organized, then we'll start posting a few, but I usually don't post my whole year. Uh, uh, we just kind of post, you know, the upcoming months. And so right now there's not much coming till March and then we get pretty busy. Then we're, we're mm-hmm. probably teaching, you know, a couple of weekends out of the month up until about the heat of summer. And then I get quiet again till fall. And you're going to go back to Europe again? Is that on the plan? I would love to go. I have some unfinished business there in Germany for sure. Uh, we still have a, a state premium broodmare there and a young stallion. And uh, so, you know, I'd like to go over there yeah. and continue my education riding with those guys, but I still have some, I still have some uh, business interests there that I need to follow up on as well. If COVID will let me. <laughs> yes. That's uh, just when you think you have a handle on things, nature throws something at you that you have no control of. Mm-hmm. Yeah good thing about horse trainers is they're resilient and that's you know that's good because i i you know once you went to australia and then here i'm in kentucky it was pretty easy for me to kind of lose track of what you were doing but you know 
COVID and your resiliency, you've kind of got this thing going and it's pretty good. I enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah, it makes you you think in a, in a different way. I was actually, I had to smile the other day, you know, because I, I try and follow, you know, what's happening with some of the horsemen that are around the world and Buck Brenneman's going to uh, start an online training system because he I can't do that. clinics. And I thought, wow. That's uh, as he he says he he openly says he's a dinosaur when it comes to technology, and now he's going to have to start looking at a different way. So that, that made me smile a little bit. How resilience comes out in everybody. Yep, it really does. And I've had some other friends going in other directions, and it's really inspiring for me to watch them. I mean, I'm not that technologically advanced, so it's a little bit of a stretch for me. But I watch, I enjoy watching you and a couple of my other friends, you know, pioneer some stuff. And yeah, no, it's really a different season. I admire it, though. Well, if if there's a chance to do any online mentoring stuff, you know, personally, if you were doing something like that, I'd I'd love to have a, your eyes on me when I'm trying to work with horses, just to give me some feedback. Well, you, you know, Steve, we sh we should experiment there. between we, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we should we should see what we can if we, you know, see if we can't scratch each other's back here somehow and keep eyes on each other or something. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, watch this face. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's been really good to talk to you and for you to share your journey with, you know, our podcast audience, and hopefully we get to to meet again in person and. Uh, I really kicked myself for not finding the time to come and see you and when you are, you made an offer that I could come and visit and I here I am stuck in Australia still. So uh, one of these days I remember that. I'll, I'll get over to I see you. I remember that. I did invite you to come and we were living in Hawaii and, you know, most people come when I invited them to Hawaii. <laughs> well, I would have. It's You know, I've always been sort of chasing your tail a little bit with doing what you want to do in life and then having to pay the bills. You know, the two the two things don't always work out the way you wanted. Yeah, it, it is. It's a compromise, I think, and, and uh, we have to be able to do both. You know, there are people that don't do it, of course, Steve. They go get a good job and, and they work and they retire so that they can do what they want later on. And Unfortunately, that may work for some folks, but I've had a number of friends that have done that work, did something they didn't enjoy and retired, and then they got drastically ill and they were gone just in a number of years. And I'm thinking, what a real shame, you know, uh, that they didn't get to live out, you know, what they waited for. So um, it's, 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 it's certainly got its cost, you know, you and I doing what we'd like to do. And, and uh, the cost for us is, you know, we don't have the security and the retirement program that other people have. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a struggle sometimes, especially when things get hard and, and nature, as we call it. But uh, kudos to you for doing it. And, uh, you know, good yeah. for you for making yourself available with these podcasts and teaching the people. You know, you're really easy to listen to. You've got a nice way about you. And, and I hope you and I can can uh, kind of catch up on some more visits from time to time. We can even pick up some topics if you wanted to, right? That'd be good. That'd be good. So uh, if you're happy to do it again, we'll actually pick a topic and follow up because the, there's plenty of things that, uh, I, I suppose if you try and teach the same thing 
for a lot of time. Like I've been trying to teach people things and trying to evolve as a teacher. But sometimes, you know, people go and talk to someone else and they'll just put it a different way and they've got mm -hmm. it. And I went, wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, how did I not find that way of explaining that so you could understand right. what I was trying to get at? So, yeah. yeah no, you're Having right. A different point of view on subjects will be awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, let's think about that. Let's, let's maybe you can kind of, you have your finger on the pulse of your audience, right? And you can visit with them and yeah. who knows, maybe there's something that's just been evading or that's a, a topic that they would like to go into deep on. And you and I can sit down and just kind of wade in it and, you know, shoulder to shoulder, see if we can help the people. That'd be good. Excellent. Well, you have, uh, have a good time over there and hopefully uh, the weather's not too bad for you. I, I sort of forget that the rest of the world isn't in the same state as us at the moment. <laughs> sweltering right <laughs> no it's it's uh probably in the 20s and sleet and snow fortunately we have an indoor arena so my horses still have somewhere dry to work but thank you steve for having That's me right. on no problem thanks for listening to the talking horses podcast you can find more information about steve at stevehalfpenny.com